It's one thing to get the people out of Egypt. It's another thing to get the Egypt out of the people. And it's a wonderful phrase, and you've heard me say it before. I'll say it many times again. We need to get that into our heads. It's one thing to get the people out of Egypt. It's another to get Egypt out of the people. Because not only does it speak to the Israelites, but it speaks to us. It's one thing to come to the Lord, to become a Christian, to leave Egypt, to actually step out and say, I don't want the things of the world. It's another thing to get the world out of us. And that's part of what we want to have happen. It's what we're doing. It's why we're even here this morning. It's why we opened the Word. To get the world, to get Egypt out of us. So God does some amazing things. First, He leads them to the Red Sea. We talked about it. They got boxed in at the Red Sea between Pihahiroth and Migdal and the Egyptian army on one side, the sea before them, and there was nowhere to go. God led them there. Why? Because He was getting Egypt out of the people. And they needed to see His triumph. They needed to see His glory, His power, His wonder. But then, as you head on into chapter 16, just three days after the Red Sea experience, He brings them to another place. A place in the wilderness. Now, by three days out from the Red Sea, the people are, are dying of thirst. They are so thirsty they can hardly stand it. And they begin to cry out, to whine, to complain to Moses. They begin saying, we need water. You brought us out here into the wilderness to die. They will say that many times to poor Moses. Why would you bring us out into the wilderness to die? We're dying of thirst. And so God does something marvelous, wonderful. He brings them to a beautiful oasis. And when they arrive at the oasis, word travels back down the ranks. I'm sure I can just imagine the people of Israel. And we're coming back. There's water ahead. The Lord's done it again. He led us through the sea. Now He's brought us to the water. And then someone up at the front goes to the water. The water was called Mara and takes a sip. <laughs> it was bitter water. Undrinkable water. A major letdown. And I think, Lord, what are you doing? It was like Hayden this morning comes walking in with a big honking snowball. Gets about three feet away from me, and I'm watching him. What are you going to do? And he goes, like that. And I went, oh, no, no, don't do it. And he just smiled. He totally faked me out. And it seems like that's what God's doing at Mara. He's faking him out. Oh, hey, you want water? You thirsty? Come on to Mara. And they get there, and it's bitter. Then it's undrinkable. And they're upset. And they're frustrated. And they begin to grumble. You got us water, Lord. Wonderful. But we can't drink it. This is not funny. This is tragic. What's Moses doing? What's God doing? I don't understand. What are we out here in the wilderness for? Let's go back to Egypt. And what does the Lord do with the people? Exodus chapter 15, verse 25. The Lord showed Moses a tree. I love that verse. The Lord showed him a tree. This is what I want you to hear real quickly. Again, this is before we actually get into our main study. The Lord showed the people a tree when they were dealing with bitterness. Listen. If you are dealing with bitterness over a hurt relationship, if you're dealing with disappointment over a business deal gone bad, if you have bitterness over a past hurt that won't go away, Bitterness. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to bet my bottom dollar that most of us have dealt with or are dealing with bitterness in our lives with somebody or something. There's something there that when you think about it, you just go, 
I, I just don't want to deal with that. I don't want to talk to that person. I don't want to listen to that news. I don't want to think about that. Bitterness. Bitterness is a dangerous thing because it doesn't just go away. Bitterness is something that emotionally in us festers and hurts us in the long run. And so what do you do when you have bitterness? I think we have this beautiful picture here. The Lord showed them a tree. There are the waters of bitterness and the Lord shows them a tree. And I believe the Lord wants to show you a tree if you're dealing with bitterness. And remember this if you ever deal with bitterness. The Lord wants you to see a tree. Actually, I think He wants you to see a couple of trees. And the first tree is the cross. The cross is the perfect answer to bitterness. Why? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Jesus, or Peter writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself, listen to this, entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, literally the tree. The tree. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you are healed. You see in Jesus, how was Jesus able to do it? How could he, fully human, trust yet absolutely fully God, but fully human on the cross, be looking out at the sea of angry people, scoffing at him, mocking him, spitting at him, and yet from the cross utter those words, forgive them, Father. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How could he do that? Because Jesus knew on the cross that day he was paying for it. And when I look at the cross, how can I any different than Jesus utter any other words to anybody in my life other than, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. When I look at the cross, I remind I'm forgiven. And what else can I do but forgive in the way that Jesus forgave? Jesus said it in Luke 23, 24. Father, forgive them. Well, the tree of the cross, if you are dealing with bitterness, look at the cross. Look at what Jesus did. Look at how he handled it and understand that his dying on the cross paid for the sins, the Bible tells us, of the whole world. Not just yours, but others as well, those who sin against you. Well, the other tree is the tree of life. The tree of life, Revelation 22.14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. And when I look at the tree of life, I am reminded that I have something to look forward to. In the cross I have forgiveness. In the tree of life I have forward thinking, which allows me not to care about the past. What does it matter? How I was hurt, how I was maligned. How I was frustrated back in the past. It doesn't matter. Why? Because I'm looking forward to the tree. The Lord shows us the tree. And He says, look at the tree and forgive. Look at the tree and look forward to what is coming. That's the mini-sermon. You get that first. That was free. You don't have to pay for that one. But if you are dealing with bitterness, folks, as we all face from time to time, and the issue of human hurt... Look at the cross and remember the tree of life, where Jesus has been and where you're going. Let's pray for a moment. We'll get into the rest. Father, thank you for this morning. 
Thank you for my friends and, and for this family who is here, for this fellowship. It's so precious. Thank you, Lord, that everybody got here safely. I pray everyone will get home safely. We thank you for the beauty of the snow around us. But we mostly thank you, Lord, for Jesus this morning. And as we study these words, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us and teach us and be our guide. Help us to understand and know those things that you would have us to understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, now the people of Israel are in the wilderness of sin. That's literally what it was called, the wilderness of sin. And not only were they thirsty, because from the trees, from the bitterness of Mara, he brings them to a place called Elim, which has 12 springs of fresh water and 70 palm trees, and it's wonderful, and it's oasis, and they have fresh water to drink, and God blesses them. Oh, I didn't tell you, by the way, if you read the story, when they look at the tree, they throw the tree into the waters of Mara, and it makes the bitter waters sweet. That's what the tree does. But after that story, they they move on out into the wilderness of sin, and they begin to get hungry. And that's where we'll pick up this morning, verse 2 of chapter 16. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Skip on to verse 11. Verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I've heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. The first frosted flakes. There they are. And when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? What is it? The word, what is it? It's a single word in the Hebrew. Manha. Manha. What is it? That's what manna means. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Skip down to verse 31 real quickly. The house of Israel named it manna. And it was like coriander seed, white. And its taste was like wafers with honey. Thursday morning. I sat down to study these things and to look into the Bible and to try and understand, you know, Lord, what what are we going to do on Sunday? And it started. The snow. The little flakes started to come. It was cold enough. The little harbingers of, of joy and, and hope and excitement for kids and a little frustration for the older adults having to deal with the kids and the wet gloves and wet pants and problems and stuff, the snowballs in the face. But as I sat there, computer on my lap, Bible beside me, looking out the window and just watching the flakes fall, I wondered to myself, is this what it was like? That first morning, is, is this what it was like for the Israelites? They woke up that morning, their bellies were rumbling and their lips were grumbling, and they looked out on this very strange, never-before-seen phenomenon. Little flakes all over the ground. And I wonder if the snow that we saw beginning on Thursday, now piled up all around us, if that's any indication of what the manna 
was like. And what did they say again? They said, man, huh? What is it? Dude, check it out. Man, huh? (laughs) What is it? And they looked and they were in awe. They'd never seen anything like it. The manna gang, it came consistently. For the next 40 years, it would not stop coming, except for on the Sabbath, one day a week. Which is even more miraculous. Every sixth day, the manna came down twofold. Double the amount came down. But then on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, this is before the Sabbath was given as law by the Father, but on that seventh day, that day of rest, no manna fell. Because they saved it from the day before. But every other day, 40 years, every single morning, the Israelites would walk out of their tents, and there it was, just waiting for them. It came consistently. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 22, says on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord meant, tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. And so they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. That's because every other day if they tried to keep it overnight, it went stinky and bad. It got maggots. If they saved manna overnight, the next morning you'd look in the little pot of manna and there were worms everywhere and it was uneatable. God was saying, every day I will give you your daily bread. Don't try to save it. Don't try to stuff it aside. Don't try to store up for the future. I've got you covered every day, day by day. It came consistently. Secondly, it came nutritionally. If you're taking notes, it came consistently and it came nutritionally. What do you mean nutritionally? I mean their feet wouldn't swell up. Listen to this. The Bible tells us in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 20, recounting these things, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna did not, you did not withhold from their mouth and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. You know what's interesting? Doctors, nutritionists will tell you that a primary cause of feet swelling is poor nutrition. It's a lack of a proper diet. The manna was vitamin-packed. It had everything in it that the Israelites needed, nutrition-wise, for their journey. God wanted to keep the sojourners on their feet. So it came consistently and it came nutritionally, but it was received, unbelievable, it was received ungratefully. Ungratefully. Eventually, as you'll see, the Israelites will complain about this miracle. They will not like it. Kind of like us with snow. It's real similar to the whole snow thing. First day it falls. Oh, isn't it pretty? It's beautiful. Kids, let's go out and play. And the second day it's like, all right, it's still here. Let's go out and play. And the third day you're going, okay. It's getting a little old. Fourth day. All right, enough. Can we just pass on the whole snow thing? Those who live in Colorado, I don't know how they do it. When it just starts snowing and it's white for like, you know, 11 months. I couldn't do that. They'll complain about the manna. I don't know. I guess they got tired of um, manicotti. Or maybe it was the manila wafers. The kids didn't want those anymore. Or the men got sick of their manwiches. Besides, when you're hosting a tent party, how often can you serve banana cream pie? You know. Okay. It, you know, it looks so good on paper. It's funny. Manha, what is it? Maybe the better question is, who is this man, huh? Who is this man? Who is it? Not what is it, 
Why do you say that? Psalm chapter 40 verse 7. Quoted by the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 7. Ascribing these words to Jesus it says, Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. You know what Jesus is saying? And the Hebrew writer backs this up and says, Jesus is saying this. Behold, in the scroll of the book, it's written about me. What do you mean, Lord? I mean this book is about me. Jesus. Jesus. In the scroll of the book, it is written about me. And if that's the case, then we should be able to see in the manna a picture of Jesus. We should be able to see in the things, and we've seen so much of this through our journey in Genesis and Exodus so far, we should be able to see Jesus in these pages, in pictures, in types, in actuality, showing up. And in the manna, I believe we do. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. And in the New Testament and the Old Testament alike, we need to know, understand, see that this book is about Jesus. Flip in your Bible. So keep a finger in Exodus 16 and flip over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Now we looked at the manna a little bit Wednesday night. But I mentioned there was more I wanted to talk about here. We didn't have time for this, so we're doing it this morning. John chapter 6. Jesus will begin to associate himself with the bread from heaven, with the manna. He will begin to draw a line in between, to connect the dots. We're going to do that this morning. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. Now, another note while you're looking up that verse. One day prior to Jesus teaching about this, 24 hours hadn't gone by since he had just miraculously fed 5,000 men. Women and children were not in that count. You do the math. At least 5,000 men, if you throw in women and children, you've got a huge, huge crowd of people that Jesus had just fed miraculously with barley enough bread for everyone. See, there's barley enough. It was barley bread. And there was barley enough when they started. There wasn't quite enough. A few loaves, some fishes, and 5,000 people feasted. 5,000 plus. The day before... Now knowing that, you're not even going to believe how this starts out. Look at verse 30. John chapter 6, verse 30. (laughs) So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign? What? What do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Are you kidding me? Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. You've got to be joking here. Are these guys absolutely blind? 24 hours before, over 5,000 people fed with bread. And now they're saying, so can you show us a miracle? Because we remember the miracles of like manna from the past. Hello? (laughs) Wake up. Did you have a piece of that bread yesterday? Oh, but Jesus, gracious Jesus sees right through their questioning, understands what they're actually saying. And this is even more amazing. Not only do they completely miss the miracle of the bread, but they ascribe the miracle of manna from their forefathers. They ascribe that to Moses, not to God. To Moses. Look at verse 32. Jesus nails them. He says, truly I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. It's not Moses, guys. 
My Father. Verse 33 says, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And by the way, a better translation is not that which. It's He who. He who comes down. Jesus said the bread of God is He who comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus begins to compare Himself now to the manna. He identifies himself as the bread of life. Look down in verse 48. Get down to 48. I am the bread of life, he says. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. He says, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'm the bread. I'm the bread. That manna was a picture. It was a type. Yes, it sustained the children of Israel, but it was so much more. It was to point you to me because behold, I come. About me it is written in the scroll of the book. I am the bread, Jesus says. That being the case, flip back to Exodus chapter 16. Jesus identifies himself with the bread, therefore we should be able to see Jesus in the manna. Look at verse 14 of Exodus 16 one more time. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. This is amazing. It's beautiful. Now I joke about the manna being the first frosted flakes, but look at how they came. They didn't come with a big Kellogg's truck. It wasn't like God had Kellogg's on retainer to bring in and roll it in every day and there's a big trumpet sounding and Tony the Tiger saying, Hey, the manna is great. It came quietly. It came softly. Like a snowfall in the night. If you've been awake at night or early in the morning when the snow begins to fall, you know that that sound that you hear? There is no sound. It's silent. And that's how Jesus showed up. The word for fine here, it says it's fine as the frost, this fine flake-like thing. The word fine is the Hebrew word dak. Dak, D-A-Q in our, our lettering. And it means a little thing. Small. A tiny little thing. And that's how Jesus came into the world, isn't it? He describes himself as the bread from heaven, the manna, and it's perfect because that's how he came to Bethlehem. Some of you know this, you Bible students, you know Bethlehem means house of bread. And the house of bread had the bread of life. Jesus came quietly in the quiet of the night. Jesus, the first sound that God made in human flesh was... Or something like that. Something like you just heard from this precious little one. The first sound out of God's lips when he entered planet earth as a human being was a baby's cry. And no one knew about it. Oh, a few shepherds found out. Some, some magi ultimately discovered the truth. But he came quietly. And the manna speaks. I'm going to give you four quick things to jot down. The manna speaks of Jesus' humbleness. His humbleness. His humbleness. Jesus gave only one biographical statement about himself in all of the accounts of his life. He said in Matthew 11:29, "I am gentle and humble in heart." You want to know me? You want to see me? I'm approachable. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. Quietly born in a barn, <laughs> a stable. 
And that tells me such good news that the Lord is approachable. He did what needed to be done so that we would not be like the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, afraid to come forward, scared to death, frightened out of our wits, but approachable like a child. He comes in humbleness. He does not present a pompous, arrogant God, but one who came as a gentle, humble human. And Philippians 2.6, a familiar verse to many of you, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation and took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of man. Humbleness. That picture of manna, it's perfect for Jesus because it is a picture of the small, the quiet, just coming into the world while the world was asleep. A picture of humbleness. And that means that right here, right now, wherever you are in life, no matter how bad, good, ugly, or indifferent you may feel like your life is, He's approachable. And you can come to Him. Well, secondly, the manna speaks of Jesus' endlessness. His humbleness, but also His endlessness. Now, we've talked a lot about that in the last couple of weeks. But look at verse 14 again. The word flake-like there. Flake-like. It's the Hebrew word kosmos. And it means round. Literally little round flakes. Which is perfect for Jesus. Because again, what does a circle speak of but that which is endless? That which has no beginning and no end. Get on a circle. Look at a wedding ring. That's kind of the whole point of the wedding ring is the endlessness of it. Although, in our human lives, we had a beginning. Our marriages had a beginning. But a perfect circle has no beginning and has no end. And it speaks again of the endlessness of Jesus. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. And I just skipped the whole point. But we'll come back to that. Revelation, <laughs> it happens. Revelation 1.17 Talking about the divine and eternal nature of Jesus. He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Now some have looked at that verse and they'll say, okay, I believe he's alive forevermore. I just don't believe he was always alive. I believe he had a created beginning. He was started, and sure, he can live eternally just like we can, but you're trying to tell me that he was eternal before, that he's always been? I can't buy that. Well, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. A verse you hear a lot around Christmas time says something I want you to hear. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth for me, one to be a ruler in Israel. Listen, his goings forth are from long ago. Really? How long? From days of eternity. This one who would be born in Bethlehem, his going forth is from days of eternity, or literally from days of immeasurable time. What is immeasurable time? It's that which you cannot fathom, you cannot count, because it's eternal. And the coming of this one to Bethlehem, this quiet, humble baby, he came as one who was already endless. He was beginningless. Like the perfect round circle. Jesus is the I Am. And for more information on this, if you want to study this, understand the Trinity more, in about a week or so we'll have CDs available from the teaching on that that we did the last couple of weeks. You can pick that up. Now look at verse 31 and Exodus 16. The manna speaks of Jesus' humbleness. It also speaks of His endlessness. But now, thirdly, it speaks of His spotlessness. 
The description again. Verse 31. The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white. It was white. It had a purity about it. It had a spotlessness about it. And the manna speaks of Jesus' spotlessness. It was pure white. And in the same way, Jesus is pure as the driven snow. Now this verse, 1 Peter 1.18, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Only a perfect man only a perfect man could pay the price required for our sin. And Jesus was that man, spotless, pure, perfect. Well, the man speaks of his humbleness, his endlessness, his spotlessness, and finally, his sweetness. The sweetness of Jesus. Verse 31 goes on and says, It's taste. The taste of manna was like wafers with honey. Mm. Wafers with honey. In my house, honey's a big deal. We buy it by the jugful. I mean, our kids put it on everything. They put it on their peas and on their ham and on their bread. And if there's a, there's a plate to eat and it's got several different things on it for dinner, honey will be on everything on that plate. If you're a Crawford kid, they love the honey. It's so sweet. And they kind of got it from their dad. I'm a honey aficionado. I love the stuff. Bring me honey. With the comb in it, you know, if, if you can do that, if you find some of the comb... Pick it up for Pastor Rick. Anyway, the man speaks of, I digress, speaks of Jesus' sweetness. And it's interesting to me because Paul says that salvation is found in your mouth. In your mouth. Romans chapter 10 verse 8, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you want to know how to be saved? There you go. That's it. If you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And it's so simple. You wonder, why don't more people do it? That's all. I mean, it just, that's where it starts. But it's in your mouth. The sweetness of Jesus. Flip back over real quickly to John chapter 6 again. John chapter 6 now in verse 52. John 6, 52. It says, The Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can it be that this man gives us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. For you see, though the manna was nutritional, it did not spare them of death. They still died. But Jesus says, no, he who eats this bread, this bread, will live forever. Jesus' flesh is true food, he says. His blood is true drink. His offer is sweet life. There is a sweetness in Jesus, unparalleled by anything else you can go after in the world. And if you have followed Jesus for any amount of time, you know this, you know this. He's sweet. He is sweet to the taste. 
He is humble. He is spotless. He is endless. He is sweetness like these little frosted flakes of manna. But hang on. I've got one last thing to tell you. And you need to not miss this. If you've been resting your eyes a bit, perk up, listen up. The manna did not always taste like honey. There was a change in the manna. Numbers chapter 11. If you'll flip over there, you need to see this with your own eyes. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book in the Bible. Numbers chapter 11. The manna described as this round, small, white, sweet thing. A picture of Jesus. But it wasn't always sweet. It wasn't always like honey. And in Numbers chapter 11 verse 4... We see the people beginning to complain about their banana bread. The rabble, who were among them, had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, all gassy food. Verse 6, but now, and listen to this, but now our appetite is gone. Can I just stop here, pause for a moment and say, listen, if you are in a point in your life where you have tasted the sweetness of Jesus, but your appetite for Him is gone, you need to be back in here. You need to spend some time back in the Word. The further out you get from the Word, the more the taste changes and the more we lose our appetite but reading on they say our appetite is gone there's nothing at all to look at except this manna I'm tired of this manna it's all we've got it's all we've seen it's just there all the time now verse 7 the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance was like that of bedellum the people would go about listen to this the people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it and its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. It's not honey. It's not sweet like honey anymore. They got a hold of this precious flaky little manna and they began to beat it and they began to press it and they began to work it over and to boil it. And they changed the taste from the sweet honey tasting manna that God gave them to an oily taste of cakes baked with oil. <laughs> this kind of stuff just blows my mind all over the room. The night before Jesus died, we're told he went into a garden. And in that garden, he prayed. And he prayed so fervently that Dr. Luke tells us that his blood became like, his sweat became like drops of blood. Hematridosis. When the capillaries in your forehead expand so much because you're so stressed out, you're so upset, that they expand and literally begin to burst, and out of your sweat glands pours blood. This happened to Jesus. He was so, so beyond any kind of emotion I've ever experienced in that garden that night and it was in the garden at that moment that Jesus committed to go to the cross oh he came to the earth to save us he knew that he made the decision to come he made that decision every day of his life but in the garden given that last moment to change his mind and he prayed the prayer and you remember what he said Father if possible take this cup from me let it pass to someone else let it pass from me blood pouring down but not as I will it as you will and in that moment gang 
Jesus, sweet Jesus, was pressed. He was beaten. In the garden called Gethsemane, Gethsemane means oil press. And this sweet bread of heaven was pressed. And this sweet bread of heaven was striped. And he was whipped. And he was beaten. And the sweetness changed in Jesus. Oh, he's still sweet. He's still the sweet Lord that you worship and love. But listen to this. The sweetness became like the taste of oil. Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. And yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. For you see, when the sweet taste of the manna, when the honey taste goes away and is replaced by the taste of oil (laughs) the flavor of Jesus changed to a flavor of oil in the Bible folks oil speaks of the Holy Spirit Holy Spirit the sweetness of Jesus was beaten in his death on the cross but following his crucifixion following his resurrection at his ascension prior to that he made this comment he said in John 16 7 I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you he came as sweet as honey he was beaten and pressed but dying and raising he has not left us alone he has anointed his followers with the oil of gladness with the Holy Spirit and we see once again in this manna a perfect picture of the plan of God that the bread of heaven would come down and give us the sweet offer of salvation and then anoint us when we accept that offer with the oil of the Holy Spirit of God who remains with us and in us for all time for all time and I want to give you an invitation this morning to receive to receive that Holy Spirit you receive the Spirit by belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus the crushing the beating that he went through taking our sins on himself our sweet Lord and we believe that he died for us and that he resurrected and in that belief In that belief and in the confession that comes of our mouths and our hearts, Paul says, you will be saved. 